Well, I want to read our scripture for us this morning. This is from Matthew chapter 6, and this is verses 7 through 13. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. David. Amen. It is the word of the Lord. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we love your word. Um, and we desire now more than anything that we would see Jesus. Would you give us um, eyes to see by your Holy Spirit that wherein we fail, uh, Jesus on our behalf mightily prevails. For we ask it in his glorious name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head in the Alpha and Omega. Amen. We all, it is good to be with you. I'll see some familiar faces and some folks that I've not had the pleasure of meeting. Uh, my name is David Filson, pastor for teaching at Christ Pres, and my wife Diane is here with me. My kids are back over at the at the central location, but it's just a thrill to be here. I've never been here before, so thanks, uh, Stacy, for letting me letting me come. Uh, just delighted to be to be here with you. A few years ago, a friend of ours, uh, she's a recording artist here in town, does a lot of studio work. Uh, just an amazing singer. She came to me and she said, uh, David, you'll never guess whose phone number I have. She showed me her iPhone and she had a phone number that she'd stored in there. And she was in a recording session and the producer called out to his assistant. He needed to call an artist out in L.A. And uh, when the, the assistant uh, kind of gave the number, she just kind of on the down low heard the number and typed it into her phone and stored it. And she came and said, look whose number I have. I think we ought to call. I said, you can't call that number. You, who, who is it? This is like stalking. There's no way you can do this. She said, I'm scared. So you really need to be. She said, it's Steve Perry from Journey. I said, give me your phone. Give it to me now. As I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but I'm going to take all of you who are like 45 years and older back to your high school prom. I'm convinced that there's never been a greater rock singer in the history of the world than Steve Perry from Journey. Can I get a witness? And listen, if you don't agree with me, you might need to pray about it. All right, I'm, so I dialed the number just to see if indeed it was Steve Perry. And I've heard all kinds of interviews with him. I dialed the number and that voice, it was unmistakable. I mean, it was so warm and I mean, really he was very open, uh, honestly, very engaging, very inviting. Of course it was his voicemail, but um, I felt at that moment that our relationship just went to a different place. I really, I felt like we became so much closer. And, and when the beep went off, I wanted to say, hey, Steve, man, it's, it's David in Nashville. Listen, next time you're in, I'm a big fan, um, hit me up and um, love you, man. And what came out, though, was sort of a short, chirpy little squeak. It's all I could get out. I, I was frozen in the moment. I sounded kind of like a little finch more than anything. Um, but the greatness of being on the other end of the line with the Steve, even though it was his voicemail, there was just something beautiful about that moment for me. Um, if, let me ask you, if you had the opportunity just to talk to anyone in the world, who would it be? If you could just sort of pour your heart out and get to know them and, and they, you, who, who would it be? 
Now, you're probably tracking with me. This is a sermon on prayer, right? This is a Lord's Prayer. Jesus has been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount uh, about kingdom life and the way that the gospel enables and expects kingdom life. But, but here, he wants to teach us that kingdom life has to be fueled by, by prayer. Um, a lot can be said about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, you can preach sermon after sermon on stanza after stanza in the Lord's Prayer. We're going to kind of get up and go about 30,000 feet and look down at it quickly today. Uh, Martin Luther, that author and ostentatious Augustinian monk, lived from 1483 to 1546. He said this about the Lord's Prayer. He said, to this day, I suckle at the Lord's Prayer like a child. And as an old man, I eat and drink from it, and I never get my fill. Now, he said that in a letter that he wrote. His barber, Peter, asked him, Dr. Luther, could you help me learn how to pray? And so Luther set quill to paper and wrote this very lengthy, very detailed, very theologically dense letter entitled, A Simple Way to Pray. Now, the reality is not everyone sees the value of prayer. Uh, I follow some uh, some atheist Instagram accounts, and, and frankly, sometimes they're quite witty. It, it's a way of seeing sort of how pop culture sort of distills the headier stuff of the Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris's and the, the, uh, the Richard Dawkins of the world and just sort of turns them into memes. I saw a pretty witty one the other day with regard to prayer. Uh, it said, oh, so you'll pray for me? Thanks. I'll be sure to write a letter to Santa Claus for you. Now, we hear that, and, and rather than recoil at that, maybe you ought to ask yourself, does does that resonate somewhere in my heart? Do I ever feel like maybe prayer is about as effective as writing a letter to Santa Claus? It's hard, prayer. It's hard. It's, it's mysterious. We, we, need, we need help. Uh, when I teach at seminaries, I, I, I tell my students, I say, look, you're going to need help in ministry because pride's going to beat you out of the ministry or the ministry's going to beat the pride out of you. Let's hope it's the latter. Uh, but until then, you're going you're gonna to need traveling partners, You're going to need men and women who have written and have lived the Christian life and who will walk with you and and you can learn from them about a number of things. I have a whole entourage in my traveling posse, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, John Owen, Cornelius Van Til, Charles Hodge, this guy on my shirt. I really do nerd out over these kinds of things. But they they teach me a lot and and I've learned a lot about prayer from some of these these people. Um, You ever wish you could just eavesdrop? on a conversation, who, who would it be? A couple of my traveling partners, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, this great Welsh preacher, and C.S. Lewis, one time were on a boat to Ireland. The year was 1953, the same year that my favorite of the Chronicles of Narnia came out, The Silver Chair. And David Martin Lloyd-Jones, this great preacher, this man of, of prayer, was an admirer of the writings of C.S. Lewis, and he asked Lewis, uh, when, pray tell, are you gonna write another book? And Lewis responded, when I better understand the meaning of prayer. About seven years later, Lewis stood at the graveside of his wife, Joy Davidman, his heart broken in a thousand pieces, and he started wrestling with this idea of, of prayer. Uh, and maybe, maybe you know something of what that's like, right? Maybe the epicenter of your own heart is so grief-stricken that, that you've all but given up on the idea that your father is gonna pay attention to you when you come to pour your heart out. Uh, Lewis became very raw, became very honest. He said this in a grief observed. Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you might as well turn away. 
Lewis goes on to say, this doesn't tempt me to not believe in God. It scares me when I think about the God who is like that. He's just being honest. His, his heart's so, so broken. And so, so we need help because maybe, maybe you feel a little bit of that as well. What we're going to consider uh, this morning is not so much kind of a step-by-step instructional manual on, on prayer, but, but to understand really three things. The one to whom we pray, um, the one teaching us to pray, and who we are when, when we pray. Um, th- think about the one teaching us to pray, right? Master teaches to pray, Jesus. The one teaching us to pray. And what I want you to understand is that the hard work of prayer is done. I wonder how often the disciples eavesdropped on Jesus in his moments of intimacy with his heavenly father. Uh, they, they wanted in on it. In fact, in Luke chapter 11, verse 2, they came to Jesus and they said, Master, teach us to pray. And he gave them essentially this very same model prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. Might better be known as, as the Disciples' Prayer because it, it helps put guardrails up and gives us a trajectory for learning how, how to pray ourselves. But, but Jesus... The Son of God, Jesus, as the Nicene Creed says, very God of very God. Jesus himself obviously needed prayer because he withdrew so often to, to pray. And, and yet he is God in the flesh. But, but I look at my own self and I, I can so much of the time get along quite well without it. Who, who do I think I am? What am I thinking when I am willing to say that Jesus, the very Son of God, obviously needed prayer, but, but I can make it okay without it? What is it about my own heart that, that being on the other end of the voicemail with Steve Perry still makes me tingly all over, yet when it comes to this idea of prayer, of this sacred intimacy with God, the very God who made me, the very God who second by second gives me every beat of my heart, the, the very God who, who causes the seraphim flying around him to have to shield their faces from his holiness, the, the very God who has brought me from death to life, from darkness to light, who has taken away the grave clothes of my own sin and rebellion and clothed me, Isaiah 61.10, with the robe of Christ's righteousness, the, the very God who delights in the buzz of a bug's wing in the foil of the floor of the Grand Canyon, all at the same time his fingers spin the rings of Saturn, but for one display of his glory, for his own pleasure. And yet, I'm like, meh, prayer. Tim Keller says this, to fail to pray then is, is not to simply break some religious rule. To fail to pray is a failure to treat God as God. And so when we think about the one teaching us to pray, he prayed. He prayed sweetly. He prayed sacrificially. He prayed, but but he prays for you now. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through faith in him, for he always lives to make intercession for them. What a prayer partner. Jesus even now praying for you. Understand this. Prayer is hard work. Let's admit it. But the real hard work of prayer has been done and is being done for you by Jesus himself. Perhaps no traveling partner has more influenced me, been more formational for me 
than, than Jonathan Edwards. He lived from 1703 to 58. And maybe your familiarity with Jonathan Edwards takes you back to ninth grade English class and you read a snippet or two out of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so your vision of Edwards is that he's just sort of this wild-eyed, angry preacher. The reality is that he preached so much about the beauty and the desirability of Jesus, the loveliness of Christ. He spoke of Jesus as the cream of all the believer's pleasures. My favorite sermon by Edwards was one he preached in 1735, and it's entitled, The Most High, A Prayer-Hearing God. And he says this about the one teaching us to pray. Listen to this. He says this of Jesus, by his atonement, that, that means his, his sacrificial death, his substitutionary death, where he took our place on the cross to pay the debt that our sins had accrued. By his atonement, his blood has taken away our guilt so that our sin is no longer a dividing wall between us and God, so that our sin is no longer a cloud through which our prayers cannot pass. He's saying that, that Jesus, by what theologians call his passive obedience, and that word passive is from the Greek pasco, it means to suffer. By his suffering obedience, he has secured the invitation of our prayers. That's one thing. Number two, he says that by his life of obedience to the law on behalf of lawbreakers like me and like you, uh, but by his active obedience, his fulfilling of the law of God because we've broken it, uh, by his law-keeping obedience, he has secured an invitation to our prayers. So by living for us and dying for us, he has assured our prayers will be heard. And thirdly, he says by his intercession at the right hand of the Father, he enforces our prayers. He says that Jesus, as it were, hand delivers our prayers to the Father. And so when you're tempted to think about prayer and you think, man, I've really been a screw up the last week or two. I need to spend a couple of weeks really getting my act together, cleaning myself up, sort of do enough good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds and then God will pay attention to me. Understand this, how do you improve upon Jesus who is ready and willing and able to just hand your prayers to your Father in heaven? Had the privilege of standing at, at his graveside a couple of days ago up in, was it yesterday or the day, but it was the day before Friday? I was at the Princeton uh, Cemetery in Princeton, New Jersey and I was standing beside Edward's uh, graveside and, and, and about 20, 25 feet over was the, the grave of, of Charles Hodge, another one of my traveling partners. And Hodge said this, I, I love this. Uh, he was a pastor and a theologian at Old Princeton Seminary. He said, when we're taught to pray in Jesus' name, what does that mean? When we are taught to pray in the name of Jesus, we are required to urge what Christ is and what he has done as the reason why we should be heard. So to pray in Jesus' name is not just this sort of traditional tag we stick in on the end of our prayers. To pray in Jesus' name, the name represents the person. To pray in Jesus' name is a way of saying, Father, receive my prayer because of who Jesus is for me and what Jesus has done, is doing, and ever will do for me. That's, that's why I'm being heard. The one teaching us to pray. The hard work of prayer has been done for you. But what about the one to whom we pray? He's a loving father. <laughs> He's a loving father whose heart is so very much for you. Jesus tells us to pray. When you pray, say, our father. That's part of what makes it good news. Now look, I, I know that the very word father brings up some hard and raw places for some of us. Uh, father wounds are real, okay, they, they are. Father wounds are real. Uh, for some of us, but your heavenly Father's welcome is for you. 
maybe especially for you. Our Father, Edwards, in that same sermon, uh, The Most High, A Prayer Hearing God, you can Google it and read it. He says this about our Father's heart toward us. He said, when we come to pray, our Father's posture toward us is one of wanting to be conquered by our needs and our desires. He says he wants to be conquered by your prayers. He says he wants to be, and I'll quote, overcome by your needs and your desires. And now let me ask you, how many daddies in this room, when your little boy, your little girl comes to you, you are all ears. They present their hearts and their needs before you. You are all heart, all arms, all hands. You want to be overcome, right? For some of us, we're wrapped around our little girl's finger to begin to view our father that that way, that he sees you, that his heart posture toward you is, I want to be overcome by your needs. I want to be conquered by your wants. Bring your prayers to me. Understand this, if you are here thinking that somehow your heavenly father is putting up with you, that, that he's tolerating you, I have good news for you. Your father in heaven will never tolerate you. Your father in heaven will never put up with you. We put up with stuff we don't like. We tolerate stuff we don't like. Your father's madly in love with you. He delights over you. And he says, come. Yet this father, uh, waiting to be overcome by the needs of his boys and his girls, um, Jesus says his name is to be hallowed. Hallowed. The Greek word there is hagiastheto. It just has an... It has a hallowed sound about it, even in the Greek. His very name evokes a sense of awestruck wonder. Over the central location, um, a few weeks ago, we were having uh, the academy, an assembly in the sanctuary, and the students were making a presentation, and one of the girls, a senior named Kate Klausner, comes up to close the assembly in prayer. And right in the middle of her prayer, just very simply, very honestly, she just said, thanks, God, you're the best. And there's something profoundly theological about a statement like that. He is the best. And his name is, is to be lifted up. It's, it's to be hallowed. It's even to be feared. Psalm 102, 15, nations will fear the name of the Lord. And all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. As Psalm 115, verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Yet this father, whose name is to be hallowed, says, call me Abba, Romans 8, 15. Call me Papa, call me Daddy. J.I. Packer says this, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. That he's made you his daughter. That he's made you his, his son. And, and, and so because of that, prayer is not merely going through the motions, y'all. Prayer, prayer is not just some sort of mechanical, therapeutic self-talk. Prayer is the pinnacle of our theology, where we, as Puritan Thomas Watson says, we come and we unbosom ourselves before the Father. We unbosom ourselves, our cares and our anxieties. And then he says, when we pray, the Father unbosoms himself with us. He gives us an inside look. He reveals his heart for us. And 
We get to know him, and, and he gets to know us, and then we get to know ourselves better. Here's the thing. That's what your soul craves, whether you realize it or not. Yeah, our hearts so often confused and, and angry and defeated and just checked out what we desperately need is this kind of intimacy because when we pray, we practice and plead what we say we believe about our Father in heaven. And what do we believe, <laughs> right? What do we believe about our Father? Do we, I'm sure you sing it here, right? I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whispers of love in the dead of night and you tell me that you're pleased? Some of you need to just be reminded that your father's, again, he will never tolerate you, right? Your father will never put up with you. He delights over you. You tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. Right? What, what do we sing? Sing with, sing with me. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. Romans 8, 31 and 32, if God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously, not begrudgingly? Your father is not a miser with his grace and mercy. How will he not also with him not graciously give us all things? Is there any legit reason that we can find not to run to a father whose posture is like that toward us? And so if you need daily bread, Jesus says, run to your father. He delights in giving it to you. If you need to be reminded of how much you've been forgiven so that you can extend forgiveness to someone else, go to your Father. He'll, he'll, he'll help you. If, if you're struggling with temptation, Jesus says, go to your Father and ask him for what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection, who is Christ, a new affection for Christ that will cause all of our other affections, the safety valves that we pull to medicate the lusts and the fear and the anger and the tiredness, a new affection for Christ that will make all of those things pale in comparison in time. Just come and he'll give that to you. That's the one to whom we pray, a Father whose heart is for us like that. It's the one teaching us to pray. The hard work of prayer is done for us. The one to whom we pray, a father whose loving heart is for us. But, but Jesus is also wanting us to understand something about we who pray. Uh, praying priests indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Prayer tells us that we're needy, that we're dependent, but it also makes some profoundly theologically powerful statements about who we are in Christ. And let me ask, have you noticed a, a Trinitarian thread to the points of my sermon, right? The one teaching us to pray, the one to whom we pray, and now we who pray and dwelt by the, the Holy Spirit. It's been said that the Trinity is Christianity's greatest gift to the world. Uh, J.I. Packer said of the doctrine of the Trinity that the Trinity is the basis of the gospel, and the gospel is a declaration of the Trinity in action, right? And it's true. That the Father chooses us. He sets his forever love upon us from before the foundation of the world. That the Son purchases us. The Holy Spirit regenerates us, brings us from death to life, from darkness to light, unites us to Christ. But think about what a Trinitarian thing prayer is. The Father bids us come, right? My heart's already for you, my daughter, my son. Jesus intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit indwells us and enables our prayers and makes of us a praying priesthood. He reminds us, Ephesians 2, 19, that we are no longer strangers, no longer aliens, but that we are, Revelation 5, 10, priests to our God. 
Understand this, when we, when we pray, we are not only practicing and pleading what we say we believe about the Father, when we pray, we are practicing and believing what our Father says is true of us. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, <laughs> a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You are a holy nation. That's who you are. And would you believe me if I told you that the word for holy here in 1 Peter 2, 9 is the same word for hallowed in the Lord's prayer. When we pray, we are to hallow the Lord, acknowledge that he is holy. But when we pray, guess what your father says of you? You are hallowed in my sight, my daughters and my sons. You are set apart. You are holy. When I see you, I see you as righteous as my son. We're hallowed in his sight. That's who we are. Frederick Nietzsche lived from 1844 to 1900. Brilliant prophetic in, in ways, uh, atheistic philosopher, you know, was an existential nihilist, if some of you are interested in those sorts of things. I, I find him brilliant and, again, prophetic in a number of ways. You, you probably, if you've read much philosophy, you know that Nietzsche posited the Ubermensch, the German for the overman or the superman. He, he posited this idea of as we progress in an evolutionary manner, we are to will ourselves to power. We overcome the weak in society. We do not let them get in our way. And we rise up with self-directed, self-initiated autonomy, and we become the Ubermensch. We become the overman. And we will ourselves to power. There is no God. There is no morality. There is no such thing as truth. We are on this sort of trajectory of just becoming more and more advanced through evolutionary progress. And he said this. this is, he had a, an essay, uh, a treatise entitled The Gay Science. And um, you've probably heard uh, some of you of Nietzsche's The Madman. That's section 125. Three sections later, 128, he has a section in in the madman is where he talks about the death of God, that God has basically died because we no longer need him anymore. Three sections later, he has a section entitled The Value of Prayer. And listen to what he says. Prayer has been invented for those people who never have really developed thoughts of their own and who do not know any elevation of the soul or at least do not notice it when it occurs. And what they uh, tend to do at sacred sites and in all significant situations in life where calm and some sort of dignity are called for, well, what religion wants from the masses is no more than that they should keep still with their eyes, hands, legs, and other organs. That way they become more beautiful for a while and look more like human beings. What he's saying is that Christianity is a dehumanizing thing. That if you really want to be truly human, you must will yourself to power. And that when we pray and, and give ourselves over to empty religious rituals, we are proving how unevolved, how unevolved we are. But, but the reality is in prayer, we learn so much more of God. And, and when we pray and we learn more of, of who God is, we, we ipso facto learn more about who we are. Uh, prayer is not only the way of understanding who God is, but we, but we understand more about our own hearts and our, and our own selves. The prayer is the best way to, to true self-knowledge because as we draw near, he defines us. Then we begin to see clearly who we are, what we're called to be, what we're called to do. Prayer helps us. I, I'm helped by this little bitty book here, Valley of Vision. I, I can't highly enough recommend 
the Valley of Vision. Um, prayers in here as, as I pray them. I find phrases like, uh, Jesus, let me find a covert in thy appeasing wounds. <laughs> let me find a covering in your appeasing wounds. And that defines me, right? I read and, and I read a prayer that, that says, oh Lord, quarry my heart deep and fill it with living water. I read these prayers and, and, and they help me, uh, they remind me and I quote, I am a poor gospel abusing sinner. That reminds me of my desperate need for Jesus. I'm, I'm helped. You know, another one of my traveling partners is a woman named Flannery O'Connor. Some of you probably are familiar with, with her, her work. She lived from... 1725 to 64, Southern Gothic novelist. And if you are into Flannery O'Connor, you know how some of her stories are, are just so dark and unsettling. She rarely wraps them up neatly. She just leaves you unsettled. Right? I, I love A Good Man is Hard to Find and the character Mr. Head where she says he never knew what grace felt like because heretofore he never needed any. How indicting. To live through life thinking you never needed any grace. And so you don't even know what it feels like. You're so full of your own sort of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. I love her stories, uh, but I stumbled on her prayer journal. A sweet little book where she started to, to write out and journal her prayers just to kind of keep herself from being distracted. And, and she says this, and, and you know, it kind of ties to what I'm saying about when we pray we understand more of who God is and we begin to understand more of, of who we are. She says, it does not take much to make us realize what fools we are, but the little it takes is long in coming. I see my ridiculous self by degrees. And she goes on to say, one thing I have seen this week, it's been a particular week, is my constant seeing of myself as what I want to be. See, prayer is an invitation to say, okay, understand who you are and that your father will never tolerate you. He will only delight over you. It's also an, inv an invitation to understand who he's calling you and enabling you to be in, in Christ. And so prayer is just that, that beautiful invitation to that kind of enabling intimacy. So as, as a kingdom of, of priests, we pray, Jesus says, for the kingdom to come. Uh, your will be done, right? Your, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for the coming of the kingdom. We pray for deliverance of evil. Uh, but, but understand this, prayer does not lead us to self-satisfied inactivity. Prayer does not lead us to self-satisfied inactivity. It leads us to self-denying missional obedience. Atheist comedian uh, Richie, uh, Ricky Gervais, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's actually hilarious uh, most of the time. Um, but does not hide his disdain for Christianity. And on November... 29th of 2015, he tweeted this about prayer. And I, I have to admit, it's cheeky, all right? Let's give him that. He said, I've just discovered praying. <laughs> I've just discovered praying. This is going to save me bleeping millions in charity donations. Only he didn't say bleeping. In other words, I have discovered prayer, and since I've discovered prayer, I'll do that. I'll never have to donate to charity again. Prayer is not a pass <laughs> from obedience. Prayer is not a pass Prayer fuels passion. A prayer does not lead to inactivity. It leads to initiative. Praying thy kingdom come leads to kingdom compassion and kingdom conviction and kingdom courage. Um, let me give you an example. My pants. Now, I know, Stacey, you've been admiring these britches ever since I walked in, haven't you? You can't stop looking at them. 
My eyes, my eyes. <laughs> Have a teenage girl in our church who uh, went and did some mission work with her father in the Rift Valley of Kenya. And there they encountered a pastor who had created in his own home uh, a refuge for some young teenage girls, very young teenage girls, 13, 14, um, who needed to be brought out of, and I want to state this delicately, brought out of very abusive, very dehumanizing um, circumstances where they were being stripped in more ways than one, uh, but certainly of their dignity. And obviously she wanted to pray for them, but, but her praying for them led her to a passion for them, right? She wanted to, to pray, not just thy kingdom come, thy will be done, deliver us from evil. She wanted her prayers to lead to kingdom pushback against the fallout of the fall. She wanted her prayers to lead to deliverance from evil in the lives of these girls. So she came up with this idea that she calls Pants with a Purpose. Pantswithapurpose.org. And, and what she's done, her name's Kendall McAvoy. We call her K-Mac. Kendall McAvoy uh, sourced with somebody here locally to make these, these pants. And, and the proceeds from, from these pants go to this pastor to help feed and educate and disciple and house these girls. It is, it is a beautiful thing. She's putting her pants where her prayers are. Now, let me just say this. Um, if you were tempted uh, tomorrow morning to send me an email and say, David, I appreciate you coming to in town, but pants like that are just entirely inappropriate for the pulpit, then I'm going to reply, um, I understand. Thanks for indulging me this once. But again, pantswithapurpose.org. Go get yourself a pair. In fact, <laughs> brothers, Mother's Day is coming up. You don't want to be caught at Walgreens about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night buying some junk there to give to. No, you want to go and order yourself a pair of pants for the purpose. Maybe even order a pair for yourself. We call them happy pants in our house. You know what it's like when you get home after a hard day. There's nothing like slipping into a pair of happy pants, right? Look, when, when, our, when we catch our kids doing good, we need to celebrate it. Uh, these are party pants. We need to celebrate it. We need to expect more of those kind of things. You know, our pastor for youth and family, Derek and, and his team, and, and Casey and his team, and Mallory and all of those, and Adriana and, and uh, Caleb and Babs and just a, a host of, of folks um, who are working to make a difference in the lives of, of, of families and kids and, and youth, man, we need to expect more of it, and we need to celebrate it when we see it, right? That they're willing to, to with their prayers, push back against the fallout of the fall. And say, Lord, your kingdom come and now fire me up. Fire me up, fueled by prayer to, to, live this, to live this out. Martin Luther, right, he said it this way. Now that God has dealt with us so kindly, has given us all that is his and has himself become our own, so that through faith we have all things that are good and needful for us, what are we to do? Are we to live in indolence or inactivity or passivity? Thus faith saves us, but love moves us to give ourselves to our neighbor since our deeds have been met. This means that faith receives from God and that love gives to our neighbor. Well, look, a lot more could be said um, about the Lord's Prayer, but, but we need to come to the table and let 
this table say something to us, because that's what it does, right? This table speaks to us, right? Thomas Boston, that Puritan, uh, or Thomas Watson, the Puritan, there is a Thomas Boston who's actually a Scottish theologian, not so much a Puritan, but similar. Thomas Watson, that, that Puritan who spoke of in prayer, the father kind of opening himself up and unbosoming himself with us in prayer, says he also does it at the Holy Supper. He reveals himself to us. He says, come and get to know me. Know yourself as I define you here as you, as you eat and drink. And, and this table says something to you. It says that, hey, if you have been satisfying yourself with a snack-sized gospel, right, where Jesus has maybe done enough to forgive some of your sins, but now you need to get busy doing enough good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds to cover the rest of them, that's a snack-sized gospel, y'all. And a snack-sized gospel is no gospel at all. What this table wants to hold out for you is the full course meal of the gospel that promises you all of your sins, past, present, and future were paid for at Calvary and you are eternally and unchangeably accepted in Christ as you come right it's time to get your party pants on celebrate love on each other laugh talk but but maybe it's also time to flex a little priestly muscle and and pray with each other right there in the pews right just pray over each other pray the Lord's prayer over each other and, and listen even if you're not very good at prayer you say look I, I'm, I'm hesitant because I just don't I don't sound good. I better leave prayer to the professionals I'm not very good at it. Um, good news for you. There's another Puritan named Thomas Brooks um, and Richard Sibbs. They talked a lot about prayer. Um, Richard Sibbs said that when it comes to prayer, even when we're not good at it, we stumble at it, the Holy Spirit can pick sense out of a confused prayer. <laughs> That's good news. So here, you have what you need when it comes to prayer. You have exactly what you need. As Charles Spurgeon that London Baptist Prince of Preachers said, you have, number one, a great need. You got that, don't you? Number two, you have a great Savior to meet your needs. So let's lift our hearts and let's lift our prayers um, and let's lift each other up as we prepare for the Lord's table. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we come.